We're going to do this morning what we do each week. We'll look at a passage now from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. If you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, even the Bible in front of you, under the seat, if you would turn to our passage that we're going to look at today from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 29. When you found that, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Closing out today this little mini-series within a series on Jesus' seven woes. Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you be, escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all of this will come on this generation. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us again quickly. Just ask God's blessing on this time and his word, and then we'll read and look through this together. Spirit of God, we just ask now that you'd come and anoint the preaching of your word. That you would open ears and hearts and minds to what it is you want to say to us, what you want to speak to us. You'd promise us in your word. You don't send out your word. It doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. Well, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, whether it was during the height of the George Floyd protests in 2020 or just everyone's Twitter and Instagram feeds around uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You just heard, and, and you tend to still hear and see all kinds of quotes from Dr. King, memes, whatever, showing up on people's Twitter and Instagram, and rightfully so, tends to show up around that time, as well as what you heard and also hear is a lot of people making use of the rhetorically powerful yet dangerously speculative kind of invoking of Dr. King's voice to support whatever your political cause happens to be in the moment. Saying things like, I, I know if Dr. King were here today, he would have absolutely agreed with or supported or condemned or whatever it is. Um, and, and you saw this everywhere, like from both sides, from the right and the left and everyone in between. Everyone was just sort of claiming Dr. King as their own and using him to support their cause. And yet, as Dr. King's daughter, Bernice, insightfully remarked in June of 2020, she said, don't act like everybody loved my father. He was assassinated. 
1967 poll reflected he was one of the most hated men in America. She goes on, many who quote him now and invoke him to deter justice today would likely hate and may already hate the authentic king. Which wasn't at all to pretend like her father was this perfect man and everything he said and did and we dare not sully his spotless name by appropriating his work. Only just to point out the hypocrisy, just the blatant hypocrisy of many who attempt to kind of borrow his moral authority, kind of pretend like they're marching arm in arm with what Dr. King was all about, while simultaneously holding to political ideologies, worldviews that would have been deplorable to him. Because that's the thing, it's very easy to speak for or speak in the voice of the dead when they're not, they're not around anymore to kind of respond to your invoking of their name kind of express their actual support for what you're saying. It's, an, it's another thing entirely when those that you're claiming are your supporters are there to speak for themselves. Which I think is almost exactly what we're going to see in this seventh and final woe of Jesus spoken over the Pharisees and the teachers of the law from our passage today. You, you see this kind of moral and political piggybacking by the religious rulers of Jesus' day. They're claiming to stand with the prophets of old on the one hand, even as they're carrying out the very same kind of murderous plot against God's messengers, and one of his messengers in particular, that their forefathers had on the other hand. They're trying to hold both together at the same time. That's what Jesus is addressing here in this last woe today. And so we're going to unpack that today, this last woe. We'll dig into it, and as we've been doing each week, we're going to look at some of the ways that we're in danger of having this same woe pronounced over us today as well. But I also want to spend some time just to pause and really dig into that closing section of this passage as well, what you see in verses 37 to 39. I want to spend some time looking at what Jesus says there because along with some important clues about who Jesus is, I think what Jesus says in these verses in particular actually changes the tone of all seven woes that Jesus has spoken over the religious rulers. It changes the whole tone of them. Which, I guess, I mean, for all the benefit of slowing down and really digging into these woes, like understanding what Jesus is meaning, uh, it kind of is also one of the limitations of, of looking at the chapter in this way, in these kind of like uh, section by section like this, as it's easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus speaks these seven woes in one long, continuous discourse, right? I mean, he's not giving these woes to the Pharisees in weekly installments, like, hey, tune, tune in next week for the next thing I'm upset about. He, he says it all together at once. And yet, I think in understanding Jesus' tone as he speaks these woes, I think that's as important as understanding the content of the woes themselves. Why? Well, because whether it seems like it to us or not, I think what is revealed by understanding Jesus' tone, understanding his manner in which he speaks these woes, reveals Jesus' heart for the elder brothers of the world along with the prodigals of the world. When we understand how he's delivering these woes, we see Jesus' heart for the elder brothers of the world as well as the prodigals. So to help us really grasp that as well as kind of live out what I believe the Spirit wants to reveal to us today, I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. We're going to talk about self-condemning praise and then heart-revealing lament. Okay, self-condemning praise heart-revealing lament. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever, would you open it again with me to that passage, Matthew 
23, beginning at verse 29. Follow along with me here as Jesus, one last time. Again, we're closing out this mini-series today. One last time, he calls out the hypocrisy, the, the mask-wearing of the Pharisees, and really warns against the misguided teachings about the kingdom of God that come about as a result of that hypocrisy. Okay, so let's look, first of all, at self-condemning praise. Self-condemning praise, which is something that actually happens a lot more often than you might think uh, in our world. Everything from like just simple ways, like I was listening to a comedian uh, one time at a Young Life camp. He started his whole set talking about how he'd gone to Tim Hortons that morning to grab a coffee. And he's like, I mean, yeah, how, how many people love Tim Hortons? But then as people are putting up their hand saying they do, he quickly follows up with, oh, I hate Tim Hortons. It's like the worst coffee in the world. And all of a sudden, everyone who's praised that coffee is feeling foolish for having done so. It's kind of a mean-spirited way of doing it, but it was funny in the moment. Uh, two, two times, like just those kind of sitcom moments in life where maybe your parents discover that you lied about something, but then rather than confronting you directly, they ask you questions like, hey, son, do you think honesty is important in relationships? Which if you're a savvy kid, you're going to smell smoke right away. You'll be like, Why? Where, where are you going with this? But, you know, I wasn't a very savvy kid <laughs> when I was growing up, so I probably would have responded with, oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, honesty is super important. I mean, without honesty in a relationship, how can you ever have trust, right? Hmm, yeah, right, I'm glad you said that. You know, totally busted. Same kind of thing here, though, actually, in this passage. What you see here, if you look at verses 29 and 30 of our passage, the, the religious rulers, they're building these tombs, ornately decorating the graves of the prophets of old. They're appearing to side with their plight and condemn the actions of their ancestors who persecuted and even killed the prophets that God had sent to warn them in the past. And as you can see here, they're talking this big game about how they wished. Man, I wish I would have been alive in those days. I wouldn't have followed what they were doing in the past. In fact, I probably would have spoken up against that. I would have been like, guys, guys, no, wait. Jason, no, this is not us. We need, to, we need to listen to these guys and not put them to death. We need to be following what these prophets are saying. That's, that's what I would have said if I was there in those days, which, oh, okay, it sounds really good. Sounds great. Until you remember that as these words are coming out of their mouth, they were in the process of planning and carrying out the murder of Jesus. At this very same time as they're saying all this, they're doing exactly what they're condemning. I mean, this would literally be like, like a, a, a plantation owner in the South, like railing against the, the awful traveling conditions of slaves on slave ships to the slaves working on his plantation. Like, are, are you really concerned about that? Yeah? It just, it just, which means for all of their pomp and circumstance and lofty words about the prophets of old and the injustice committed against the prophets and all these things, the reality is religious rulers were no better than the ancestors that they were condemning, which is what made them such hypocrites. And you could, be, you could kind of respond by saying, well, but right, but they didn't believe Jesus was from God. So they weren't really being hypocritical, right? They didn't, they, like, how could they be condemned as hypocrites? They didn't know they were doing the same thing to Jesus. Well, yeah, unfortunately, Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Pharisees, kind of spoils that line of reasoning in John 3 when he meets with Jesus one night uh, in a secret meeting and he says to them, literally, we know you are a teacher come from God. <laughs> like, we know you are because we know no one could perform the signs you do unless he was from God. So, yeah, maybe they were wrestling with the implications of that, 
the fact that what does this mean that he's a prophet come from God? But the reality is the religious rulers put Jesus to death with full knowledge that he was at least a prophet come from God. R.T. France says it well in his commentary on all this, noting it was easy with the passage of time for the people to distance themselves from the way their forefathers had treated the prophets and the righteous and to build monuments in their honor. But in fact, nothing had changed. They were still descendants of those forefathers in attitude as well as genealogy, as the treatment of God's messengers in their own day clearly showed. But when we're trying to understand all of this, as well as everything that Jesus goes on to say about all this, um, kind of how they're, they're, go on and complete the work that your ancestors started, uh, talking about prophets and sages and teachers that were being sent to them, even like this, this condemnation of hell that's going to come upon this generation. I think the key to understanding all of this is in recognizing the striking parallels between everything Jesus says here in our passage today and the story that Jesus told just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 21 about tenants working in a vineyard. If you weren't uh, here for that or if you don't remember quickly, Jesus had spoken about these tenants. Again, tenants, not owners, working to hi- hired to work in a vineyard who then beat, persecuted, even killed messengers sent by the master when the time of harvest had come. And they are part of the harvest that they were meant to give to the owner in order in exchange for the right to live on his land and work there. They were basically taking out all the messengers sent. And then there's that final plea where the master of the vineyard finally sends his son in this last ditch effort saying, they'll respect my son. They, they kill him too. They throw him out of the vineyard. I mean, this sounds exactly like what Jesus is describing here. And certainly what goes on to happen to Jesus And then do you remember the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees at the end of the story? He said, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? To which the Pharisees, they reply right away, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Yeah, right. Yet again, filling up their speech with self-condemning praise, just as they're doing in our passage today. It's the exact same thing. And man, as we've seen each week, it would be so, so easy in this moment here to just stand in judgment over the Pharisees and the teachers of the law once again in the face of their blatant hypocrisy. Call them out as snakes and a brood of vipers, just as Jesus does here. An expression Leon Morris notes taken together means actually snakes and sons of snakes. And we could do that and then miss the way that we do this very same thing in our lives today ourselves. Namely, condemning in others what we condone for ourselves. What uh, psychologists like Adam Grant refer to as the fundamental attribution error, where we ascribe blame and condemnation for the very same action that we condemn and we condone for ourselves, which for the Pharisees meant condemning prophet-killing actions of their predecessors as being worthy of God's judgment, while condoning their own murderous plot to kill Jesus as, well, we're just guarding the integrity of God's temple and its service. And for us, shows up in any number of different ways, but with no less devastating effects. From, like, praising the heroic bravery of the missionaries of old, these, these men and women who gave up everything for the cause of the gospel to go overseas, to go across cultures, to bring the message of the gospel to people, we're like, man, these guys are amazing. Isn't it incredible what they did while at the same time not being willing to even mention Jesus, 
not even mention our faith to people at work, people in our school, ourselves. We're praising this sacrifice on one hand, but we're not willing to do it ourselves. To, to championing a pro-life cause, a protection for the lives of the unborn, but, but not being willing to surrender rights that might actually protect the lives of children who have been born. Like, maybe I don't need to own an assault rifle that's actually being used to take out our kids. I'm not willing to give up that right, but we need to protect the rights of the unborn. Or even, like, even more so, like, when, when it's your own daughter, your own 14 or 15-year-old daughter who becomes pregnant, and suddenly yeah, we're not so sure anymore about, like, would, would God really condemn this act? Would he want my child to bear this lifelong consequence for one night's indiscretion? Problem with this. What Jesus has been highlighting throughout each of these woes as well is that whether they were self-deceived in their hypocrisy or believed that the good they had done had somehow just canceled out the bad that they were currently doing, hypocrisy like this didn't only leave the teachers of the law and the Pharisees condemned before God. It also left those looking to them to know what God's word required of them, as Jesus says, twice as much a child of hell as they were themselves either because they followed the religious rulers and their hypocritical application of God's word, or because they abandoned the pursuit of God entirely. When they came to see and conclude, it really was as pointless as they already believed it was. The same is true for us as a church today. Really, as it relates to any of the seven woes that we've been looking at, whether it's through our gatekeeping, our focus on the peripheries of the law rather than being willing to get to the heart of it, and obey the heart of it, presenting a whitewashed veneer of faithfulness which blinds our hearts and the hearts of others to the truth of what's going on actually underneath the surface, to, as we're seeing here today in Jesus' final woe, preaching gospel truths that we don't practice in reality ourselves. As citizens of God's kingdom, we, we have a responsibility, a great responsibility to take the integrity of our witness seriously. Not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of everyone looking to us to know if this kind of alternative kingdom story that we're presenting to them really is worth pursuing. We've got this great responsibility for how we guard the integrity of our witness, lest through our hypocrisy we become just as much a brood of vipers as the Pharisees in Jesus' day had become themselves. Okay, that's that's self-condemning praise. This practice of championing a kingdom cause that our actions reveal we're not truly behind. Last thing I want to look at together with you as we conclude this little kind of mini-series within a series is heart-revealing lament. What we see here of Jesus' heart-revealing lament. Which, as I mentioned earlier to you, we see in this kind of closing section of our passage in verses 37 through 39 which I believe really kind of colors in the otherwise black and white presentation of Jesus' seven woes. I'm just going to read it for us once more, just remind us of what Jesus has said, and then we'll unpack it for a minute or so. Again, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which, as I was trying to kind of think of an analogy to kind of help picture what's going on here, is Jesus 
says this. The image that kept coming to my mind over and over again was of a couple in this heated argument in the midst of a big fight, maybe out in public somewhere. So if you can just like picture that with me in your mind, this happening, because I know like none of us actually fight with our spouse or with our family like this. So just try to imagine it. You see people in the midst of this heated argument with one another. And then at some point, we've seen this, right? At the kind of pinnacle, the, the, the grand crescendo of the fight, the person, one of them usually just kind of will storm off, right? Go to the other room, slam the door, maybe gets up from the table, chucks the drink in somebody's face and walks off. We've seen that happen, right? Sometimes that's how these kind of heated arguments end. But sometimes what we've also seen is a couple family or friends involved in the very same kind of heated argument, but at the crescendo of the fight, rather than storming off, walking away, what you see instead is the person just burst into tears. They, they, they crumple into the park bench they're standing by, or maybe even into the chest of the person that they're fighting with, which, which communicates something very different, doesn't it? Because storming off, throwing a drink in someone's face, what that says is, I'm done with you. Like, this is over, I'm out of here, nothing to do. But, but what remains, like when, you, when someone remains and they're bursting into tears, what that says instead is, I'm so mad at you. I'm, you, I'm so hurt by you. And I love you so much. <laughs> Which is what makes this distance between us hurt so much says something very different. Do you see the difference between those two kind of conclusions to a fight? I say that because I believe that second response is exactly what Jesus is doing here in this, after this long, heated discourse between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and himself. I think that's what he's doing. He doesn't storm off in a rage, kind of knocking over a few more t- tables as he walks out of the temple. Rather, he bursts into this passionate, perhaps even angry, tear-filled expression and lament of his love and his longing for those that he'd just spoken these woes over. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This, this repeated naming you see throughout the New Testament as Jesus' expression of care and concern when he's like, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon, Saul, Saul. Every time he does this, it's an expression of care and concern. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often... I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and, and you would not. You were not willing to do it. Just look, he says. Look, guys. Your house is left to you desolate, and now you won't see me again until I return in a way that reveals unmistakably who I am, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you hear it? Do you, do you hear the, the heartbreak? And the longing in Jesus' words, how, how desperate and loving his heart remains, even for those who are persecuting him and rejecting him and planning his death. It reminds me, first of all, of the pleading of the father in that parable Jesus tells about the two sons. Remember, the prodigal comes home and he throws this big celebration, but the older brother won't come in. And the father, going out to this son who's totally dishonoring him, still goes out and pleads with him, please come in, come in and celebrate your brother. It also reminds me, once again, of the profoundly gracious and compassionate response of the Father pictured in that same parable about the tenants in the vineyard, where even after abusing, 
shamefully treating, even murdering those he'd sent before, the master of the vineyard still says, I will send my son. They will respect my son. Which, as uh, Tim Keller so powerfully pointed out when we looked at that passage, revealed that much more than his property, what the master of the vineyard wanted most was the tenants themselves. He wanted restored relationship with them. Man, understanding that now, doesn't that just radically change and color the tone, like, like how you read Jesus' woes that he's speaking over the Pharisees now? I mean, of course, it's one of the limitations of a printed word as opposed to, like, hearing how this sounded in real life. It's one of the reasons, like, in, in talking about, like, communication when they, they teach us when you need to uh, communicate something important, something of, like, value or maybe something hard, it's better to have a conversation and not send an email, right? Because you can't read tone in an email. I can't read tone in a text message, like how I'm saying it. For me, anyways, I think reading this conclusion to Jesus' seven woes powerfully transforms how I imagine him and his tone as he delivers them. I see it a totally different way. So, so that those woes spoken over the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are not given in anger. It's not wrathful. It's not just like, you know what? I'm just done with you. Whatever. Instead, it's this heartbroken compassion for those that he still longs to be in relationship with. Which means it's not a lambasting in these woes that Jesus is delivering. It's a lament that he's delivering these woes with. I love D.A. Carson's summary of this final section. He says, The effect of Jesus' lament is twofold. First, it tinges all seven of the preceding woes with compassion. Far beyond personal frustrations, there are divine judgments that, although wrathful, never call into question the reality of divine love. And second, this is so important, also the Christological implications are unavoidable. This is why I said earlier that this last section really reveals a lot of important things about who Jesus is. As Jesus claims himself to be the one who has longed to gather and protect his rebellious nation. He also reveals himself as the one like, by, by my leaving, my presence leaving, that's what makes the temple desolate. He's very much like saying, I, I am the one who, who did all this by saying these things, which means, yeah, despite the kind of momentary cry of the crowds a little bit earlier and the triumphal entry when everyone's saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, like they've said that, and yet it's clear what Jesus is mostly referring to there at the end of verse 39 is what the Apostle Paul refers to in Philippians 2 when he writes about that final exaltation of Jesus after his humble act of giving his life for the sins of the world where he is given the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every tongue will confess and every heart and knee and on earth and under earth and, in and above, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think he's referring to that day, a day when we won't be able to help confessing who he is, but a day, sadly, when responding to Jesus' offer of grace is no longer available. What I hope all this helps you to see regardless is the heart of Jesus revealed towards the religious and hypocritical. So I think it's just important for us to know and understand as Jesus' heart for the prodigal. That is, those not concerned about trying to look righteous at all. I think we need to understand both of those. Because we spend a lot of time here, uh, and rightfully so, talking about how lovingly Jesus dealt with the sinners of his day. The, the tax collectors and prostitutes, how he welcomed those that the religious excluded. I think absolutely that's so important. We should look at that. But I think one of the potential dangers of kind of this 
long, focused time looking at Jesus' direct, harsh-sounding words to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with these woes that we've been looking at over these past weeks, is we could begin to conclude that Jesus only came for the prodigals and not also for the elder brothers of the world. Which is why, again, I think these last verses of our passage, Jesus' discourse to the religious rulers, is so key to understanding the whole chapter. Really, because discovering Jesus' tone, the manner in which he delivered these woes, I think it helps broaden our understanding to understand Jesus' heart to include both those far from him through disobedience as well as those who are far from him through their religious obedience but just done for the wrong reasons. His heart is for both. Which I don't know about you, I'm not going to speak for you, but gives me a great deal of comfort actually. Gives me a great deal of hope because I'm someone who I know at times shares the Pharisees' tendency towards hypocrisy. I share their tendency towards prioritizing the peripheries of the law rather than really living out the heart of it. I share the Pharisees' tendencies to talking a good game while not backing it up with like real-life action in my life. How incredible is it to know that Jesus' heart and compassion extends to the religious hypocrites just as much as it does to those living in open rebellion to his word. In his work on this passage, D.A. Carson concludes in this way. He says, verses 37 to 39 preserve Jesus' last recorded public words to Israel. Just pause and think about that for a second. This last section here, these verses 37 to 39, that's the last time Jesus speaks publicly to the crowds. Jerusalem, the city of David where God had revealed himself in his temple, had now become known as the city that killed the prophets and stoned those sent to her. So you can see why Jesus would mourn and lament that. But just seeing the fact that these are the, this is how Jesus concludes, this is how he ends everything he wants to say, I find both sobering but also fascinating. When you think about it, if you remember, Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount in a similarly foreboding and also kind of unfinished way, kind of like dot, 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 like what are you going to do now? Remember he ended with that parable of the two builders, talking about the man, lastly, who built his house on the sand, and then saying, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Amen. That, that's how he ends the whole sermon. Which, in both cases, then and, and here, kind of seems like the most somber, uninspiring way to end any kind of public discourse, doesn't it? I mean, didn't Jesus want to leave the crowds inspired with like a, a picture of his kingdom and, and, and everything that he was bringing to kind of inspire them to want to live out and, and press into all the stuff that he was presenting and teaching them about? Well, I think the answer in both instances is yes, he did. And he also wanted to leave them with a realistic picture, both of the cost involved in following him, what does it mean to be a follower of me, and what failure to pay that cost would result in. He wanted to leave them with a realistic picture of those things as well. Right? That, that just continuing on with the status quo, 
just trying to keep everything at a manageable pace that didn't upset what they were most comfortable with and already familiar with, that, that wouldn't suffice in what it means to follow me. A warning, sadly, that it would seem, particularly for the teachers of the law, that was not heeded. It, the, a warning that they didn't take, and it was ignored, which we're going to see in the coming weeks, actually, as Jesus will now go on to prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple in particular, saying not one stone will be left on another, which is actually what took place in AD 70. That's what happened. And we know that this warning, this, this way that he ended was ignored largely because a part of the story that we don't often consider, particularly because the story of the Bible goes on now to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection and then, and then the spread of the church. Uh, through Jerusalem, out to the ends of the known world, to the place where 2,000 years later, you and I, we know about Jesus here in North America. And I pray we've become citizens of his kingdom as well. Rightly so. The Bible goes on to tell this story of how the spread of the gospel went on following Jesus. But the incredible sad reality, as one commentator pointed out, is that following Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, aside from busying themselves with trying to just like stomp out every last follower of Jesus still around, whatever part of his movement was still going on, do you know what the religious rulers in Jerusalem did? Historians tell us that they actually took the, te the temple curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies that had been torn apart when Jesus was crucified. you remember? And they just sewed it back together, hung it up again, and then continued on as though nothing had happened. Now, can you even fathom that level of either hardness of heart or self-deception in heart that you would take one of the clearest signs ever, like aside from like the God-man Jesus being like right in your presence, one of the clearest signs that God was doing something new through this coming of Jesus. He was making a way of access to himself that had never before been available and just responding with, huh, that was weird. Better get that fixed. And then just continuing on like nothing had changed. Just, just unfathomable blindness as well as heartbreaking closed-mindedness closed that would allow the religious rulers to take this sign of open access to God to all, including them. Instead, treat the temple curtain almost as though it was something that contained God in the temple. Treating the temple curtain as though it was somehow like it bound God to the temple. And yet, as Jesus plainly says there in verse 38, he says, look, your house is left to you desolate, by which he meant not simply the coming physical destruction of the temple, but the removal of his presence. When he says, the, the, I'm leaving this to you, this is, this is going to be your thing now because this isn't my house anymore. That's what he meant. Now, yes and amen. The, the, the destruction of the temple was an important thing because that had never been God's like, long-term plan. The temple was a sign pointing to an ultimate reality that God wanted to dwell by His Spirit, not in a building, but in people. Yes, absolutely. But just how, how truly sad is it to think of those next coming years following Jesus' ascension into heaven when life in the temple just continued on as though nothing had changed, even though God's presence was no longer with them. He just continued on with the same practice of religion, even though God wasn't even there anymore. 
which terrifyingly I think is one of the scariest things when it comes to the practice of religion that focuses on the peripheries while neglecting the weightier matters of justice, mercy, faithfulness to God. Because at the end of the day, those peripheral things, those things can just be continued on whether God's presence remains or not. We can keep going through those steps that look really good, look like there's life when really there's none. Which as we think about our own life, and practice as God's church today, it ought to cause us to really pause and think. Really consider for ourselves whether anything about our practice of faith today requires the presence of God to remain in order for us to carry it out. And as well, to really honestly ask ourselves whether as a church here, we are known for what Jesus says he wants his church to be known about and to be known by, justice, mercy, faithfulness to God, that we would be a city on a hill, a light that can't be hidden, or whether we're not in danger of being known more for the very things that Jesus speaks these seven woes about over the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So as we close this morning, I mean, I don't want this to be kind of like a big downer or anything, but I actually want to close in a similar way that Jesus does in his last public address here in his earthly ministry just to call us to pause and sit in the weight of this and just do some self-work, some self-study individually as well as corporately together with this picture of what's at stake when we try to cling to what's safe and familiar on the peripheries of following Jesus rather than following him to the, into the hard, less familiar, though, though infinitely more rewarding places of obedience that require faith and that require his presence in order to carry out. I want us to just really sit in the reality of that, and, and is that a reality for us? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to leave up a listing of Jesus' woes that we've looked at over the last few weeks. It's going to leave this up on the screen, and in our time now of quiet reflection, of just like seeking God and listening to the Spirit's voice, as we do now at the end of each service, I want to invite you to just review the list. Look over this list and ask the Spirit to give you and to give me just a clear, self-conscious awareness of any place in your life, any place in the life of this church where hypocrisy like this exists. And then by God's grace, give us faith and the humility to make the intentional choice today to follow Him out of those places, to follow Him out, to leave them behind, both for the greater depth of enjoyment of ourselves with God, as well as, as we've been talking about, for the integrity of our witness. If you notice that all through Jesus' woes, he doesn't just talk about the effect on those who are carrying out those acts. He talks about the effect of those looking to us as well, the effect on, on, on the lives of those who see our witness. That by God's grace, as we walk out of these places, that they might see <laughs> Those looking to us might see and know that this alternative kingdom story we're presenting and calling them to consider really is better than any story they're currently living out. So let's go to God together. Let's listen to the Spirit's voice. Ask Him to do that work of revelation in us now.